Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. If you uh, have just visiting or just joined us this week, we are actually uh, four weeks into a series through the book of 1 John uh, called Proof of Life. And it's really great that you're here and really great that you've joined us. Uh, And if you've missed the start of the series, that's okay, um, because you will still get a stack out of this week by itself as a standalone message. Um, But also, if you do want to catch up, uh, Andrew Tran has uh, gone ahead and put a stack of hard work in to get the app up and running properly and all the podcasts there. Um, And so use that, share that, make use of that, uh, catch up. The last couple of weeks, uh, Tran preached last week and Josh preached the week before, and I gave them a listen through the app, and uh, they're really worth listening to. Um, And so, yeah, do catch up on the series uh, that way. It'd be awesome. Uh, but we are in First John tonight. Uh, there are Bibles in the, sea, uh, in the pews. If you want to grab one of those, that's okay. If you want to use an app, that's okay. If you just want to listen, that is perfectly okay too. Uh, if you do grab that pew Bible, it goes back on the seat. Not, we've had a few of them crammed into the thing. They don't fit. It's not pretty. The cover's ripped. So don't try and do that. Just put it back where you found it. Um, but uh, we would love to get into the Word tonight of 1 John. Um, we call this series Proof of Life. Because John, the author of this, gives us several proofs or several kind of tests of whether or not we have been saved. And the proofs really come down to this. If the gospel has saved you, if the good news of Jesus, what he has done, has saved you, then it will change you. And tonight we're looking at 1 John 2, verses 12 to 17. And the proof that we will see tonight is that if we're saved, if God's really transformed our heart, then we will love God and not the things of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your disciple John and the letter that he's written. Uh, And we pray that as we come to open that up and look at it together, that you would uh, come by your Spirit and open up the Word for us in a way that would continue to transform us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So John uh, continues his writing. From verse 12, we're looking at this, and he's writing this. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We'll read the rest in a minute. But, but John, the disciple John, who is late in his life, he's lived a long life, he's old in years, um, he is uh, kind of a, a, the grandfather of the church, the last remaining disciple of Jesus who's alive, uh, is writing this letter. And I, I imagine even the man of his advanced age, even the people just a little bit younger than him would be dear little children. And he writes with a, a pastor's and a father's affection for his church. He's writing, we believe, from Ephesus, uh, to a group of churches around what would be part of modern-day Turkey. And this letter was kind of written to them 
uh, as a bit of a circular to go around. And he writes and he uses these terms, these affectionate terms like little children and, and young men and, and fathers. And I think he addresses it this way, not because it's just like, okay, only the little children are this and only the fathers are that and only the young men are that, because we see that these are gospel things that apply to all of us. But I think it's, he uses these terms to remind us that this message is for all of us. And so whether you are here and you're a little child of God or you're a, you're a father or a, or a young man, this word of John is for us, the church. And, and so he wrote these little children, and I think he probably wrote that, uh, referencing the whole church, and then he probably realised that some of us are, think that we're not little, so he added the fathers and the young men, because they're probably the most likely to be like, I'm not little. But this is for all of us, it's meant for us. And, and what does he say? He repeats himself, and I think the fact that he repeats himself is, is pretty much just like what preachers do, they want you to understand what they repeat. But he says this, he says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know him who is from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You know him who is from the beginning. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. The section of 1 John, what's come before this scripture, which uh, the other guys preached the last few weeks, it totally prepares us for this moment in 1 John. In 1 John 1.7, we heard, don't go on walking in darkness, because only if you walk in the light will the blood of Jesus cleanse you from all sin. And so he reminds them in 2.12, he says, but your sins are forgiven. In 2.4, last week, we heard, don't go on disobeying God's commandments, because if you do, your claim to know Christ would be a lie. But then he reminds them, but you do know him who was from the beginning. And he's about to say, uh, which we'll see in the coming weeks in 3.8, don't go on sinning because he who sins is of the devil. But then he encourages us before that comes and says, but you have overcome the evil one. And so what I think he's doing here is that he wants the church to be secure in the gospel the true gospel, that, that Jesus paid it all, that he holds us, that he saved us, that we know him who's from the beginning, that we have overcome in Christ the evil one. And why is he doing this in this section? Why is he kind of pointing out what it would look like to not be saved and then telling them that they are saved? This is what it looks like if you don't know God, but you do know God. It's because he's about to help them. He's about to paint a picture for them that will help them to fight and to put away their sin and temptations. And the two tools that he gives the church are these. Firstly, he reminds the church that they're in Jesus, that we're secure in Jesus. John Piper, who some people may know, some people may not, but I, he's a theologian, pastor that I listen to a lot. He says this, he says, if there is no hope of winning, there is no motivation to fight. We can fight our sin because we know that in Christ, the victory has already been won. 
And so he helps us by showing us that in Christ we already are secure. We're already saved. And the second tool he highlights to the church is the word. He says, you know, grab the word to fight the evil one. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. In reality, the first one of these, being rooted in Jesus, is in fact so related to the second, the word, because the best use of the word is actually to remind us of the gospel and who we are in Jesus. And so really they're tightly related. So where does our hope come from? In the midst of our fight against our sin. Well, I think in verses 12 to 14, that's where our hope comes from and that's what John is reminding us of. John repeats himself a lot and I think it is because he wants us to sink in that we are found in Jesus. He says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know who is from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You know who, him who is from the beginning. You are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The word of God living in us, the gospel message living in us, the, the word of the Bible living in us, by Jesus' grace, for his glory, helps us to be strong. And when we think that we've already lost the fight, we give up. But when we know that in Jesus, that he has already won, we can fight on. And what is that fight? What is that struggle? It's that temptation to live for ourselves. For this life, for now, for the things of this world, which we're about to see. And let's be honest. If we are completely honest with ourselves, we actually all have a battle as Christians to face. We know that we are saved. We know that we are redeemed if we are in Christ. And we also know that we're called to live in the world and present Jesus to the world. If you're a Christian, Jesus has called you to be his ambassador, to present him to the world. So he's called you to live here, to be a part of this world and to present him to the world. We're called also out of the world in a sense, to be different, to love different things than the rest of humanity, to live for different things, to want different things. And the love of the world that he's about to talk here, he's about to say, if you love the world, you don't love God. And the love he's talking about isn't the kind of love that we are called to have for people who don't yet know Christ. It's talking about loving the values or loving the same things that the rest of the world loves. Just living for this world. Loving the present and not thinking about what is to come. And so John wants to test us to give us proof of the new life that is within us. And what I want to challenge us with or ask us to consider today is this. If you are in love with the world and the things that this world has to offer, has the gospel really got a hold of you? Because when we forget the gospel, the message of Christianity, and start living as though this world is all that there is, we can no longer effectively love God. 
if there is no God and there is no gospel and then there is no salvation and if you in Christ have not overcome the evil one and if you are not forgiven your sins for his name's sake, if none of that was true, why would you give, serve, sacrifice? If we're going to live as though those things aren't true, why would we choose to reach out to our neighbours? Why would someone choose to maybe even take a, like a lower-paying job so that they can uh, relate to and live in and live amongst the poor? Why would anyone choose to, to move overseas or even perhaps move across the city to, to live in an unreached area to share the good news if the good news was not real to them? If it wasn't real, why would you just not live like everybody else? following the world and the patterns of life that it's kind of set out for us. You know, wonderful spouse who fulfills you, 2.25 kids, uh, wonderful house in the burbs. Not that those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but why wouldn't we just choose to make that our goal if the gospel is not real? Get the most out of life you can now because there's nothing to come. Christians are instead actually called to be salt and light. And that is different. Changed and making an impact by the way that we live. And the way that we live should be so different that it's actually a witness to the world that shows the world God, who He is. And how can we do that effectively if we are so in love with what the world has to offer that we don't love God and look any different? Now, I want to be really clear, um, trying to love God, like mustering it up and pulling up your socks and doing your best to, I'm going to love God, that will not save you. But if you are truly saved by God, it will change the heart of what you love. You will love the Creator and not just created things. You will love God and not just what God can give you. You will love what is eternal and not just what is of this short life. How are we to do that? It is true that we are saved by grace, but the scripture actually says that anyone who says that there's no sin in them is a liar and the truth is not in them. And so we know that we all still have a struggle. How are we to live this way? How can we do it? Well, I think that John's laid this out for us really helpfully, and that's the Word of God living or abiding in us helps to strengthen us against the world's temptations. We've got to have the faith. In the midst of what the world says you should love, what the world says is desirable, what the world says is beautiful, we have to have the faith to believe that God is better. The enemy lies to you. He says that God does not want you to be happy. He says that God is holding out on you and sin is better. In fact, this was the lie that was told to Adam and Eve in the garden at the very beginning. God is holding out on you. Take this, it will be better. In fact, it's the same way that Jesus was tempted 
uh, when he was tempted out in the desert, the things were presented to him that, you know, this is better. This is going to be better. And it was the word of God abiding in Jesus in that moment that allowed him to resist. Your temptations, your temptations lie to you, saying that in them you will find fulfillment. They whisper to you things like, if only you had a bigger house or a nicer spouse or smarter children, or if only you had that particular boyfriend or girlfriend, if only you had that particular uh, sexual experience or that partner, then you would be fulfilled. Then you would find peace. Then you would be at rest. If only I could have this, and then my itch would be scratched. And it says, there you will find fulfillment. But John writes in verse 15, and on, he encourages us with this. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't love the world or the things of the world. I mean, how do we know what that is? We'll get into that. And it says the world is passing away and whoever does the will of God will abide forever. I think it's an encouragement to live with an eternal perspective in mind. We actually are called by God to enjoy the world. God's call to his people in Jeremiah 29 is to live in the place that they're called but don't adopt the patterns of behaviour of the people they're to live amongst. And so God actually calls us as Christians who are called out of the world in one sense to still live within it. You know, to, to, as Jeremiah says, to plant gardens and, and to build houses and to, to prosper in the land. But we need to make sure that our identity and our deepest joy is not found in the things that this world can offer, but is found in Christ. Because the truth is, if we're not finding our deepest joy, our deepest satisfaction and our deepest intimacy in Jesus, the truth is we haven't seen Jesus for who he is. We can love and serve our world the best by being more in love with the world that is to come than the world we live in now. Because it's part of our witness, part of our message to the world is how we live. And if we just live like the rest of the world, it's a sign that God hasn't changed us. And I believe First John would say a sign that, that we haven't really seen Jesus for who he is. If the gospel hasn't changed you, the gospel hasn't saved you. And now we might not be able to see that change. We don't know where you've started from. We don't know what that change is going to look like. But the gospel is effective. It bears fruit. And it will begin to change us. The truth is that if we love the world and all it has to offer, that pushes out our love for God. Jesus said that we can't serve two masters. He was talking in the context of money. Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
And given our culture and our time, that's probably pretty appropriate because that's wealth is an accumulating matter is what a lot of people live for. And, you know, early retirement blogs and, and the desire for wealth and building up things is prevalent. But I think this can also go for anything in the world. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve the desires of the world and God. We either use God to get stuff or we can use our stuff to serve God. And I think what we have to be really careful of is that this can be really insidious for those of us who are in Christ. We think we're okay. We think that we are holy and kind of good people and made right because we're in Christ. But realistically, the creeping tendrils of compromise reach over and grab us. They come in when we least expect it. We want to live for and serve God. But it's so easy to get sucked in to living and serving for other things. It's really just empty, empty talk to say that you love God and then to go ahead and love all the things that are not of God. And what does loving the world look like? Because that's maybe perhaps a pretty conceptual thing. Well, John lays it out for us. He says, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. So he says, lust for what you do not have and what God has not, not given you. I'd say desires of the flesh. I think the pride of life would be this. Look at me. I made it. It's pride over what you do have in this life. I think we all kind of do all of these all the time, but we sometimes have a tendency towards one or the other. And if your tendency is towards desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes, what will help you in the gospel is this, is to know that you already have everything in Jesus. That will be our weapon from the word. And if your tendency is towards pride of life, thinking that you're someone special and that you've made it, you need to know that, aside from Jesus, you have nothing. In Jesus, we have everything, and aside from Jesus, we have nothing. If your tendency is towards this uh, idea of desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes, and, and that's what kind of leads you away from God... You need to know the gospel, and it's the gospel alone that will help you to live out of your uh, new found identity in Jesus Christ. When you feel like you don't belong, you can know you have a God that called you before the foundation of the world. When you're tempted to live for no purpose, you can know that you are called by God and he has prepared good works for you to walk in. When you're tempted to steal, you can know that you belong to the God who owns the entire world and has promised to supply all your needs. When you're tempted to use someone else's flesh to find you know, sexual fulfillment and comfort, you can know that true intimacy is found in Jesus and that there are pleasures forevermore waiting for you in heaven. When you're tempted to lie to kind of save face, you can know that Jesus is the truth and that true identity is only found in him. When you're tempted to kind of covet someone else's bigger house, you can know that you have Jesus who's gone before you to prepare a place for you in heaven. When you're jealous of how someone else looks, you can know that God looks at the heart and that true beauty is found in the holiness we are clothed in in Christ. 
when you're jealous for someone else's abilities, when your own body is frail and weak or broken, you can know that Jesus is preparing for you a new resurrection body that won't fade, won't grow old and won't grow weary. When you're shut out and rejected for your faith or who you are, you know that you have a family of sisters and brothers all adopted under the one king. How we, we fight the temptation to sin in the light of what Christ has done for us in the gospel is this, anything that the world could offer you is a dim reflection to the riches that are yours in Christ Jesus. Because this world is a mirage compared to the coming eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Don't fall so in love with the reflection of things to come that we live in, that you forget to long for and love the things that are not yet. When temptations come, and they will come, Our greatest defense is the gospel of all that God has done for us, which is so much greater, so much better, so much juicier, so much higher than anything this world could offer you. But if your tendency is towards pride of life, which I think we all go there sometimes, you need to be reminded not what you have in Christ, although that's true, you need to be reminded that you have nothing. apart from him. You can't take your achievements to God. I mean, who you are, what you built, your educational status, where you live, you can't take that to God and expect him to be impressed. And in the end, he is the judge whom we will stand before at the end of time. The opinions of your co-workers, your family, your friends, even your mother-in-law, they don't matter. In the end of time, what matters is that Christ is the judge who will stand before and his opinion matters. And you can't take your achievements to God and expect him to be impressed. He says that the cattle on a thousand hills are mine and why you might not be into bovine, what he's saying there from the Old Testament is like the world is mine, the sky is mine, I own everything. Like if if you went to God and said, hey, look at the great house I own in the great suburb, God would say, good for you, the world is my footstool. And it's just a tiny speck on that planet. If your tendency is towards pride of life, the gospel message that we need to be reminded of is how big God is. The gospel helps us to see ourselves as we truly are and God as he truly is. Any kind of good works we can do, any kind of... uh, way we can build ourselves up and say, look at me, I'm a wonderful person, look at all the charity work I've done, look at all the people I've served. I mean, that is all garbage, religious garbage in the eyes of God. The only thing that matters is that we're found in Christ, not what you have achieved. So along with these these gospel messages of, you know what, God loves you, he has given you everything. In him, you are a son and daughter of the Creator. Balanced out with, aside from God, you have nothing. Along with that, the ultimate reason that should fuel our love for God and and dampen our love for the world is this. Now, hang in there with me, because this is the reason. 
that nobody wants to buy stock in MySpace. And for some of the younger folks, they probably don't even know what MySpace is. Before there was Facebook, there was MySpace. That's what I'm talking about. Before Facebook, there was MySpace. And now no one wants to buy stock in MySpace. And why is that? Because it's done. I mean, you can still log on. It's still there. Don't do it. It's embarrassing if you ever had a profile. I tried it. Don't search for me, please. But it's done. No one wants to buy stock in MySpace. It's not entirely done, but it's fading away. The world is passing away. And that is why, along with the gospel, and this is part of the gospel message that Christ is coming back, that's why our love for God should be so much greater than the world, because the world's passing away. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Does anyone remember um, Lord of the Rings? The movies, the books, Lord of the Rings? Kind of, just stick with me on this tangent too, please. Uh, if you don't remember that and you're younger, you might remember The Hobbit. Before The Hobbit, there was Lord of the Rings. Actually, the other way around, The Hobbit came first, but anyway, not the story. Um, there's a character in that, this kind of twisted creature, um, Smeagol, who loves the ring, who wants this ring, but this ring is ultimately headed for destruction. It's passing away. And, and throughout you know, the whole uh, nine hours or 11 and a half hours, if you get the extended editions of film, we follow this creature chasing this ring headed for destruction. He desires after it. He lusts after it. He would kill for it. But ultimately, that ring is headed for destruction, and in fact, it burns him up as he chases it into its death. He gets thrown into a volcano, he dives after it, smiling with glee as he's burned to death. That is you. That is me if we are in love with the world and all that it has to offer. We ought to love what's going to last. Love what will fulfill you into eternity future and not the things that are passing away. That 69 Mustang that you so want to drive, it's passing away. That house that you want to own, those particular friendship group you want to break into, none of those things are necessarily bad things, unless you like the environment and the 69 Mustangs of V8. They're not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they're not eternal. And if they are your highest goal, if they are your highest treasure, if they are what you are living for, they're passing away. Love what's going to last. God is eternal. Jesus says if, in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And John says in 1 John 5, 3, which is coming in the coming weeks, he says... For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And so loving the Father in 3.15, in 5.3, which is coming, and loving the Father in verse 15 here that we can see, is doing the will of God. If you love God, you'll do what he says. 
It's kind of empty talk to say, I love God, but I don't want to do what God says to do. And so John is saying in verse 17, if you love the world, you'll perish with the world, but if you love God and do His will, you'll live with Him forever. And so then we have to kind of ask ourselves for a minute, well, okay, that's great, but what do I do with my earthly desire? Is it okay to still want things? I want to say it's not actually wrong to desire things. We're not Buddhists who teach that the lack of desire is the goal. Jesus made us with desires, and they're not bad. It's not wrong to want things, but we need to ask ourselves, why do we desire them? What is our highest goal? Do I want to get married and have a spouse to somehow fulfill me? Or do I want that to help me see more of God? And do I want them so I can appreciate and love God more in and through them? Or do I want a a huge big house so that people will slow down as they drive past and think how rich and impressive I must be? Or do you want a house with many rooms so that you may open it up to the needy and the lonely? It's not wrong to want the things, but why do we want them? What is your deepest desire? Is it for the things of this world, to love them and find acceptance in them, or is it to live in the world living for all that God has given you? The, qu- the question to ask in closing is this, can you be saved? Can you be a Christian and not love God? One John would say no. And so this is a challenge for us to examine ourselves and and ask, if you don't love him, what does that mean? I'd say it either means that you're not saved or that your love has grown cold. And so if you are struggling with your love for God, I want us to seriously ask ourselves, Am I saved? Am I really a Christian? Do I know God? And perhaps some of us, that could be true. Perhaps we are just cultural Christians or a hereditary Christian. We're just a Christian because our parents were a Christian. We think we're a Christian because we go to church and we're a moral person. But that's not the gospel. If you're here and you think, do I love God? Perhaps... You don't really know God. But Jesus is calling you. And he wants you to respond to him for yourself through the power of the Spirit. And so I'd encourage you to cry out to God that he would open your eyes and that he would soften your heart. Because the truth is this, if you don't love Jesus, it's because you haven't seen him yet. Because once you see him, you can't help but love him. You can't make yourself love Jesus. It's impossible. To love Jesus, you just need to see him for who he is. You need to see how much more beautiful he is than the world and what the world has to offer. What he has to offer is sweeter and it lasts forever. But perhaps you are a Christian and your love for God 
has just grown cold and you don't realise it's still there, but it's there. Have you grown cold? And it's the same cure again. It's God who changes us. We can't will it of ourselves. We get into his word. We ask him to light us up once again and we ask him to fill us up again because it's seeing how beautiful Jesus is that will help us to fall in love with him. Get into the word. Abide in the word. See how beautiful Christ and his gospel is. And I think if that is us, we again need the words of 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14, to be reminded of who we are in Christ. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. If this is you and you've grown cold, you will, you will need to feed on the, world, uh, on the word, not the world. Whoops. And you will need to know that in Jesus you are secure. And you will need to remind yourself of how beautiful the gospel is and how much it is good news. If your love for God is cool, has grown cold, it's because your love for the world has grown and they cannot coexist. If you love the world, the love of God is not in you. But if you love God... Every good thing in the world can be enjoyed in such a way as to fuel your love for God. So see Jesus as so much better, sweeter and lasting than what the world has to offer. Jesus is beautiful. His gospel is beautiful. And in beholding him, seeing him in the word, experiencing him, abiding in him, our love for God will grow as our love for the things that are temporal and passing away fades. All this was made possible through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, his propitiation, as we saw last week, his death for us on the cross. And so tonight, as we celebrate communion, what we do is we actually zero in on that beautiful thing the beautiful cross, the message of the gospel that, that Christ, who is God, came and died for us. And so as we finish tonight with communion, perhaps I could be so bold as to say all of us probably need our love for God increased. And so I would encourage all of us as we take communion, those of us who are in Christ, as we take communion to reflect on all that this means for the creator who made the world to, to enter into his world and to die for it. What a beautiful story that we could not have written. And allow that gospel to fill you again and to, to ignite your love again. Um, in this church, 
communion is open to all who are in Christ, who are a Christian, um, and so we would invite you, even if you're a guest, to participate with us. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the one part of our community that we reserve only for those who are in Christ, and that's because we actually believe that, that in doing this, we are remembering what Christ has done for us. And our heart and our desire is that you could, could be a part of that. And so we would pray for you in this moment that, that the eyes of your heart would be open to see how beautiful Jesus is and what he's done for us. Um, but if that uh, hasn't happened for, for you yet, we'd ask that this is the one thing that we just reserve for Christians. Uh, and in this moment, we'd, I'd love you to consider who Jesus is, consider what's going on here and what's happening. Uh, and if you don't understand, feel free to, to be, uh, make a ruckus and ask people around you what's going on and say, tell me about this. Tell me about the God who would, who would come and die. Um, we're going to pray and we're going to take communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good to us, that you so love the world, that you gave your son Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not die with the world but would have eternal life with you forever. And we pray that as we come to this time of communion, you would deepen our love for you as we see you for who you are again. Help the things of this, this world to fade away and grow to him in the light of who you are and what you have done for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.